hello and welcome to episode two of the Warfighter Training and Simulation Podcast with Tom Constable and Colin Hillier. Hi Tom, how are you doing? Morning, very well. I mean, licking my wounds a little bit, but not too bad. I hear you had a tough time with some throat lurgy. It was actually flu, but yes, I, I don't want to yeah. dwell on it. Those that know me know that I'm basically always I go from one lurgy to another. It's something to do with having children. So yes, I hear. yes, perfect incubators. Yes, <laughs> but interesting to see some of the numbers and coverage on our podcast so far. Early days, but it's quite interesting the breadth and sort of international flavour. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you asked. It's all about countries at this stage. It's how can we spread our influence across like a virus. It's a, commu- it's a community, isn't it? Community, yeah. sorry, that's, that was the but, word I was going for. There was for. one number that was a bit concerning to me, and, and I was, uh, Sweden seems to have dropped down in the rankings, and I was worried we're not as big as we were in Sweden. No, or, rephrase, bigger in other countries now. Well, yeah, but it, I mean, it's all about the rankings. You know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, maybe if we could get some more sort of uh, Viking influence, uh, that could improve the take-up in Sweden. Any We've, thoughts? Yeah, well, we've got our tame Viking warrior who may live in Australia now or or even be Australian. However, yeah, we've got Steen from Gartech who's going to be coming on as our guest who is going to tell us basically about, I think, the future doom of the world. Ah, the, I mean, the, the rise of the machines. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. But it, <laughs> he certainly looks like a Viking to me. So I think they'll accept him as, as one of their own. Yeah, definitely. Um, Countries-wise, we've got listeners big, big in obviously the United Kingdom, US, Germany, Australia, Canada, Sweden, Italy, Qatar, France, Spain, Cuba, Ethiopia, uh, New Zealand, Saudi Arabia, Singapore, Turkey, India, Indonesia, Norway, and Switzerland. Yeah, so some of these places are interesting to me, uh, and we're sure this isn't some of our listeners just you know picking up our podcast on holiday. <laughs> it could in, be in Ethiopia. It's <laughs> so. I have an invite for you, Colin. I'm looking forward to this. 17th, we have been invited by Improbable Defense to go to their part, their inaugural partner network event. There's going to be a whole host of things, 12 or so companies that are part of their ecosystem now. And they've asked us to come, give a little talk on the Warfighter podcast, but most importantly, see uh, and experience this partner network in action. They'll be talking about some of the pain points within industry and brainstorming ways in which they as a network can support and influence and also most excitedly for us i think is that they'll be demoing their their it set demo of their partner network in action i think it's i think it's going to be skyroll do you think they might show us the skyroll in action yeah i mean i'd like to say as the the main sponsor for our podcast that we get an exclusive preview but we don't we're, <laughs> we're in the dark with everyone else and we'll see it this week so i'm very intrigued to see what they've been working on don't worry listener episode three of the podcast we will be reporting all and spilling the beans so actually really looking forward to that and we'll cap off this episode with our usual segment from andy forks giving us an update on all the training simulation news so looking forward to that as well so without further ado let's move on to the interview i think i'm going to say this about pretty much every interview that we do but i I really was excited and really enjoyed interviewing steen so here's steen bisgard from gartech welcome steen hello gentlemen how you doing Really good. Uh, very excited for this interview. I know we had a little taster of the kind of the planning meeting and I was equal parts fascinated and terrified by what we discussed. So hopefully that will be conveyed during the interview. As is now tradition for the podcast, could you please give us a kind of brief overview of yourself and your background? Yeah, absolutely, mate. Um, so hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Steen Biscard. I'm the founding director of GuardTech Global. GuardTech is a defense innovation robotics company. 
and we founded in Australia uh, about four years ago. We now have GuardTech USA, GuardTech Australia, and GuardTech UK, and I'm the director of GuardTech UK. And it is um, quite an interesting time for robotics training preparation for conflict and ensuring that our guys and girls know what they're going to be doing. Well, it is a pleasure to have you on. And as is the title of the podcast, it's all about robot wars. And that is quite sensational, but it, I, I really want to unpick and explore what that concept is and, and take us through from a training perspective, what we've been doing and kind of specifically around armor historically and how we've been training with enemy armor uh, and take, get your take on that, the pros and cons of that. And then we can work our way through the journey to where we are in modern date with modern day technology. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, for myself, I was a troop leader, squadron 2IC, went through as an armoured officer, went through a number of the establishments in Australia on the Abrams tank. The main thing that I identified during my time was that we were preparing this great team. And the analogy I like to use is we were a sporting team and we were training against nobody and we were unable to go and play a game because a game would equal war. So it's very hard to replicate mechanised and a joint live fire context. What it is we're actually going to do. You know, warfare is an extremely dynamic, evolving, challenging beast. And what we couldn't do was replicate the enemy forces that we were told we would be looking for. So mm-hmm. I started GarTech with the idea that we could create an opposition force that would represent what we need to look for, understand how we need to find it. And then when we do make contact, execute a simple plan violently so that you could do your live fire activity through it have the first round downrange, excellent target zone, beaten zones, and first round on target. Because in that sort of high stakes environment, as we are seeing in current conflicts, the tank that shoots first and it shoots accurately wins. And that is the difference between life and death of a crew, and it's the difference between a very expensive asset and the ability to regen forces. So that is what we started off to try and solve. And that is what our robotic enemy vehicles now do for armored fighting vehicles, but also for the joint force jets tanks, high miles, all these sort of high value asset assets. Traditionally, what we were doing was we either had two-dimensional wooden cutouts or we had old hulls sitting there, which mm-hmm. were of old friendly vehicles. And we would just blast our way through them. And we couldn't just create the dynamic complex scenarios that we liked to talk about in our shoots. We liked to talk mm-hmm. about it at the officer's mess as we were going over officer training. But really, I felt like we weren't executing that in reality when we would send hundreds of people, many, many tanks, We'd be out there for months and the cost of that activity was was huge. So for me, I just felt like we were coming a little bit short and I thought I had an idea of a way we could fix that and a way we could make it just a little bit more real. And I think, you know, a target system and the training environment, it's probably the final 10% that you need to close the loop. But once you can close that loop, you can start learning the lessons and speeding up the training and people can really get better. And that is what will help them survive if they are called on to deploy. From my time in the military, we, we I, I do remember patrolling around training areas and seeing these hulks that have been there forever. For as long as I was training, walking around them, we knew exactly where they were and there was nothing dynamic about them. So, you know, and I imagine, is that the same for yourself when you were working with hulks? They were they static, very hard to move. So every time you did go training with your troop, you knew where to look to, to engage those yeah, targets? Absolutely. P- people do. It's also, I think it's really bad juju that you're going to be shooting at a replica, sorry, at an at a old friendly vehicle or something that was once yours. It's not teaching you to look for the intricate facets of what is the enemy vehicle. And the ability to change your enemy forces is critical. You know, we've shifted from Afghanistan and Iraq now through to 
back to conventional doctrinal massed armies against each other different platforms like if we look at how quickly as an example is that the ukrainians are managing to field different platforms mm-hmm. or the russians are also fielding different platforms you know you need to have brilliant afeid to know who is friendly who is enemy what are the intricate markings and call signs that we're looking for to distinguish mm-hmm. that so you know that's really where we come in and our ability to field that in a relatively simple logistical manner so that people can put their guys and girls to the test just to Pull back. We're trying not to use too many acronyms to make sure that it's engaging for everybody. Could you elaborate on AFVID? Yeah, so Armoured Fighting Vehicle Identification. It's probably one of the most important things, I think, in the armoured world and for pilots and for a lot of people who command high-effect weaponry systems. You have to know if you are hunting tanks and armoured fighting vehicles, Mm -hmm. who is friendly and who is enemy. Because blue on blue, the term given to when we accidentally shoot and kill our own forces, happens Mm. a lot. And it's Mm -hmm. in the heat of battle and when you're scared and when you're tired, confused, it's dark, everything's turning to shit, you know, you're fighting for your life. It's very easy to rely on pulling the trigger to keep you safe whilst Mm -hmm. you are actually putting your brothers and sisters in arms at risk. So that's sort of where we really approach the, the training space with our systems. Maybe going off on a tangent, but with Ukraine, the armored fighting vehicle recognition is even more important from, I imagine, from a UAV perspective these days. That's how, in this modern conflict that we're watching, identify where the enemy position is prior to pushing up the armor or the infantry or whatever it might be. You don't want to drop bombs on the wrong vehicle. I think there's, you know, there's hundreds of brilliant lessons that are coming out daily on what is happening and it's refocusing people's understanding of what we need to be able to do. The core premise that we believe it is, is that if you can't, set up the battlefield once you get to a live fire stage and when you bring people out of the simulation space and into the real world and they have to be confident and competent at shooting real weapons then you have to recreate the battle space and if you're not that that is where people have traditionally fallen short because it's been a very hard thing to do there Mm -hmm. wasn't a system that you could just get off a pallet set up in an hour make robotic, network it, have Mm -hmm. 20 of them commanded from one tablet and then Mm -hmm. execute scenarios against it and then pack it up the next day. So, you know, that is what that immersive experience, it is simulation, it's live fire, but it's still Mm -hmm. a form of simulation. But it's Mm -hmm. what we believe is that that final 20% of the training cycle that people, when they do go live, it's very expensive, it's high risk. We want to make sure it's the best live training they will ever be able to do because after that point, they will be expected to be ready to go. You, you sort of came up with a concept and you went down a certain road, but could you just speak about some of the options you had for using, say, full virtual simulation versus rehearsing in the live environment and why you went down this route with robotics? What was your thought process for that? Yeah, well, you know, I discharged from the army about five years ago now. And our simulation at the time when we when I was a uh, say a troop leader was quite simple. It was the it was a tank gunnery simulator that we would go in for maybe 10 hours before we would then transition to a live fire focus. And uh, when I was a troop leader, we spent months and months in the field actually living on our tanks, moving them around, being with the team and actually learning how to survive in that environment. So we didn't have a training system that was built around simulation which I believe a lot of people are moving to now is their sort of core premise. You know, my opinion is that simulation is excellent for reps and sets of trying to, you know, your switchology and your muscle memory, but I don't believe yet that it is going to be able to provide a fully immersive experience with consequence. Live fire training, I believe, provides consequence of action, consequence and fear and the human uh, emotional response that you will get. 
And I think that's very hard to recreate in the simulation world. So like I sort of said, as people get to the final end of their training, I think simulation should be about 80% of it. That's, it's great for that low cost. You know, you can do it anywhere. People can learn, you can network in, you can have a whole army from over the size of Australia working on a single simulation system. Perfect. But at some point, they're going to have to get tested in the field. And when they do, I think that is where we would like to come in. And that is what was, was my experience primarily. So simulation wasn't my focus. It was understanding that the live fire space had been neglected and that there was a way that I believed we could improve it. So really your training is almost like the capstone piece and you see elements of simulation as part of that build-up. But I guess the summary of that is it's really hard to get that. How do you feel on day five of being out in the field, tired, you've been up all night? Yeah. You know, you've got to think about logistics and, and all the things that might yep. go wrong, weather. Yeah, tiredness when we go in the box, we're normally pretty fresh, you know, going for a couple of hours. Absolutely, you know, absolutely, yeah. mate. And, I, you know, it's just that, um, you know, I think – the Australian attitude towards it is we would deploy into remote parts of the country, which is half the distance of Europe away, and you have now taken your soldiers away from home. There is absolutely no communication with anyone. It is 45 degrees Celsius. Your tank is baking hot. You're dirty as can be. We have these things called green ants that bite like absolute crazy, and uh, you just get to live with them all over you. You know, it, it's it, there's just things in that that you just really struggle to recreate and i believe you know any of us who've deployed to afghanistan also understand that you're in a crazy hot environment as a operational experience and that you know imagine trying to recreate the fear and the complexity and the heat and the fatigue and the separation anxiety all that into a simulation activity to teach people what it's really going to be like and then also kill off some of their mates and let them have the emotional response of actually losing their comrades. War is extremely horrible. Now, we're just trying to, in the real world, get them to the closest point that we believe that they could have. In Australia, they refer to it as a pre-combat veteran. So obviously people who deploy, or you know, they become a veteran. And the ideal state on paper that you would like to have is that your soldiers are as experienced and as trained as possible, and they are a pre-combat veteran. And if you can get them into that bracket, and I believe it's only a bracket that would last for a few months where they're as ready as they could be. So you need to have a, a cycle of continuation training and refresher training. And you know. But once you've got them ready and that they are as competent as they could be, then you know that you've got a potent force that can go. And that is, you know, again, where I think a lot of armies still fall short. And I guess another benefit is obviously against your against these robotic targets, you're able to use live fire. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So I'm speaking uh, all in the live fire context. So Tanks which is a totally them. different dimension in terms of it becomes real you know that and i think anyone yeah. who's, who's who's fired on a on a range with blank ammunition yeah look it, it can still hurt you but it's a different mindset suddenly something triggers in your brain and it's like this is serious so yeah i think we all perceive get. the consequence immediately yeah and as mm-hmm. we were about to live fire I remember the first time I fired a tank. I'd been in the simulator. It was great. And that was when I was on my ROBC, my regimental officer's basic course. Mm-hmm. The first time they put me in a tank for real and said, shoot that, oh, my God. We <laughs> over sideways. I was just like, yeah, we put the round in. We closed the breach. The commander gave the command. And then the gunner was like, are you sure? Like, do you really want me to do this? And we were just like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah, and, and we just had this moment, I remember, because there was three lieutenants in a turret, which is a very funny thing. You're not really going to get that very often, I hope. But there was three lieutenants in a turret. The instructor was back in the tower. And, you know, we, the gunner looks at the commander and he's like, are you sure? 
and the commander's like, I don't know. Like, he's covering his microphone, like, I don't know. And then they're like, what round did you put in, Steen? And I'm just like, the one you told me, I think. And they're like, well, we can't open the breach. You know, like, that. <laughs> this is a true story, right? Like, it's hilarious because when you think back on it, you're just like, what the fuck? But the reality is people freak out and the consequence of fire is extremely real. And that's my personal experience. I think everyone's probably going to have a story of the first time they fired anything. You learn that lesson, you feel it, but we're trying to make sure that people do it in a safe manner. It's able to be replicatable across the country and it caters to all different weapon platforms. We're not just talking about tanks. We're talking about jets, ARH, long-range fires, drones, everything that you can think of that is high-value weapon system or high-consequence, it needs something to shoot at. And some of our work now with the Jaeger is where we're rolling more into the autonomous space, but we'll get to that later. Everyone needs a target. We actually say it's that for want of a nail, we say for want of a target. Because mm-hmm. without it, you miss something, and honestly, everything starts to fall apart. Yeah, I fired a Challenger 2 on, on Castle Martin Rangers. I've got an opportunity to go and visit Royal Time Regiment and, and got into the turret and fired the cannon i don't know isn't it rifle but anyway yeah. i was like that isn't it amazing I was, guys didn't i hit it and then the soldier next to me turned to me and goes no sir you uh you missed the target you're too low i was like what is the adrenaline that was going I, I thought i hit oh. it i didn't have the experience of what it, a live round looks like when it does actually hit yep. hit the target sorry just really quickly on that one shot placement is actually critical with the developments of armor packages the developments of active protection systems and the means in which people are defending their vehicles also um, you know if you're finding a defensive force if you're finding a force that's only going to expose a very small amount of their vehicle the ability for soldiers to identify quickly know exactly where they actually need to hit it and get the round down first this is metrics that we can measure we refer to it as the lethality metric how lethal is your force and we take into consideration time of engagement shot placement and shot accuracy where were they aiming where did the round actually hit how have they set up their platform have they done all this and we can gather all that information and provide people with a bit of a red card and say you've shot really quickly but you were short every time and you've skipped your rounds in so reality is you've lost maybe two or three tanks in that engagement or you know your jet has missed it every time or mm-hmm. the amount of targets we have packed up that are in perfect condition is shocking and it just echoes to me that people's application of fire and their ability to they're fully conversed on the system they've done heaps of simulation they know what they're doing but none of that actually matters because they didn't kick the goal like you, you, you know if you don't actually get it in the net if you don't hit the right point go back to your original point about you know where the target is and when it's a hulk with them um, beautiful crater patterns around it from you know a thousand other rounds that have tried to hit it it's pretty easy to identify in the real world you know certainly there's a story from the other week where trying to identify a tank at 2,000 yards and the complaint from the, the students under training was well we can't we can't find it it's hard yeah look in the real world it's hard to find these things and it's gonna be hard yeah yeah it's even harder so and under pressure all these sort of things so you've got a real thing that moves around tries to camouflage itself, hide itself. And there'll be some other things that look like targets, but they're not the target. Because they will, you know, in the in the modern battle space, there'll be four or five other things that are burning or you could hit. Oh, yeah, obscuration, not, not confusion. I think the key point there is that there's a person in that vehicle that uh, people are looking for. There is, when we talk about the enemy or we talk about the opposition or we talk about finding a tank, what we're really saying is that we found a platform that has people in it who are utilising their tactical abilities and their education to an intellect to fight. Too often we sort of see an enemy force in a training scenario that doesn't have any free will, doesn't have any ability to think, and it doesn't create problems. 
one thing I always tried to do when I was a troop leader was think, how am I creating a problem for the enemy that I will encounter, which is what's going to win me this, win me the engagement. What we do is we like to be really cunning and we like to create problems for the friendly forces so that when they come at us with their best formation or, or whatever we're doing, they are shocked because, holy shit, the enemy gets a vote. What do you mean that they're already, they've beat us to the best ground or they've already got positions stacked? Or One of these scenarios that I can talk about really quickly is we had a set up in a country position in Australia where the Air Force was flying a number of surveillance assets and fighter jets. And we hid one of our SA-6 replica robotic systems in a massive machinery shed. We put some tractors in front of it. It was under a steel roof. It wasn't detected. There was ARH and fighter jets in the area. And they'd found ZSUs, they'd found T-80s, they'd found BMP-3s, and they would drop their ceiling and they started commence their bombing runs. And there was JTACs in the area coordinating it all. And then when we noticed that they were low enough where they would have been within SAM range, we rolled out the SA-6 that they had an NAI over that area and they were looking for it. And there was a period of time where we drove it out and we elevated the missiles and we let off the smoke to show that it had gone through a firing sequence and then they detected it. And then it was like a, you know, get out of the bubble, get to altitude, get out of there. And you just had aircraft going all over the place because we triggered that drill. Now, there was pilots flying in. They were doing probably their, their bombing profiles. They were pretty happy. They were comfortable with what they were what they were doing at the time. Then all of a sudden they got told to scram and get out of there because there was something that a surveillance asset had been watching, but they, you know, it was dynamic and it moved and it changed and the threat profile changed. And that moment I was like, that little thing there will hopefully stick with people for a long time, that the enemy has a vote and they'll hide and your enemy will always unmask itself at the best time for them, not for you. Mm -hmm. And that's what we try and carry through. So, you know, there was a lot of very expensive, brilliant assets there that got a little bit of a taste of, oh my God, the enemy will fight back. And that's what we try to deliver. The, the targetary systems are just the mechanism in which we do it. Anyone listening who is ex-military you know, should get excited by that concept because I definitely do. It's, it's, that's the kind of enemy that I want to be or wanted to be fighting against. That's how I, I become a better warfighter. And it's what keeps you sharp when you're on those training exercises, which is the point. I just want to take a slight step back because I want to build a bit more context. This is, this is fascinating stuff, but years and years ago, I think three, or three, three years ago or so, Steen, I saw a post randomly on LinkedIn about what you guys were doing. This is before you became famous and you know, you've really kind of started to take off. But what was really drew me to what you guys are doing is that the simplicity in an approach. And I, I just wanted to highlight that innovation and significantly force multiplying technologies don't have to be complicated or expensive. They just have to be well designed and well executed. Yeah, so we are all about making consumable robots. And that's two words that don't very often go together. Mm. And what that means is we have to be able to build them out of readily available materials. They have to be recyclable because they're going to be destroyed. We have to really go now and forever. We write all the software. We make all the mechatronics and all the PCBs. We do all the metal fabrication. We do all the graphic design work. We do literally every single thing which is a lot of core competencies that we are now quite good at so that we can offer a product that is able to be at a cost point that you would drop a bomb on. If the target systems were to cost hundreds of thousands for a good robot, which isn't, isn't ridiculous, there's lots of tiny little robots that cost that much, it wouldn't be feasible. So there is a cost mm -hmm. ceiling that we had to get it under and we've achieved that. You know, We can make a number of brilliant robotic systems. I won't say the cost just in case anyone out there is a little bit too interested to try and copy it. But, you know, we, we can achieve a cost <laughs> where it's extremely competitive and it 
provides the justification for people to say, well, no, we can shoot this and we can test our forces because when you then look at the cost of ammunition, fuel, one hour of an airplane, sending 100 guys and 20 tanks across the country for a week, you know, when we start looking at the assets that we're using, we believe that for a tiny cost increase on any training activity, you're getting a very, very large realism injection. Mm-hmm. And that is what we're actually really proud of that because you know, a lot of people try and make things that are overcomplicated and expensive. Yeah. We go the other way. We're kind of constantly trying to drop this price down. And you know, at the moment, we're starting to fabricate in you know, the hundreds and we're starting to see prices drop. And at the moment, the global environment is quite challenging. But mm-hmm. you know, as we start to offer this on larger scales, we can get the prices down more and more and more. And that is what's going to start to unlock the utilization of this kind of technology and approach for everyone. And the foundation, I mean, it gets yeah, my entrepreneurial brain ticking over as soon as the more we talk about this, the more you know, additional use cases, and of which none of these will be new to you. But you know, things like decoys during World War II, the inflatable decoys that were used prior to D-Day to try and distract. Yes, no, that's one thing that the, the British have such a rich history with deception. Mm-hmm. Not going to say the British invented wartime deception. I think it's been a thing that's been around forever. But I will say that the British mastered it during World War Two, and it's thanks to the uh, engineering and ingenuity that a lot of a lot of Brits demonstrated during the war that a number of things were achieved. Technology is advancing rapidly, and therefore decoys have to also advance with it. And I won't go into it too far but the entry is yes we actually have i believe some of the world's best decoys and we're able to employ them in very similar ways that we employ a number of our technologies and there may be some in europe at the moment and there may be some not but what is interesting is that as sensor systems proliferate the battle space and as everything gets a thermal imager everything gets brilliant zoom there's radar systems all over the place what you have to start doing, I believe, is hiding in plain sight. So if every asset you have, you want to have a couple of decoys out there. <clears throat> and I think a number of the employment characteristics for decoys are very similar to the employment characteristics required for training systems. So we're quite lucky that we invented this product that has a brilliant wartime application. The core skill sets that we have to design vehicles, to make them do pattern of life, to ha- enable them to have thermal signatures, EM signatures, radar cross-sections, you know, visual signatures, all of that fits absolutely perfectly in the deception world. You know, you've got that two-for-one application because your training stock becomes your part of your, your war or deployment stock, which is... Yes, you know. and, and if your soldiers are setting up your training systems, they are double trained now because they can immediately go and set up a replica tank of their own because they mm. understand the process. You know, and uh, we're quite proud to say that we can set up a robotic enemy vehicle in less than an hour from on the pallet to fully assembled and driving around in less than an hour. I don't know of anything else in the world. I've traveled extensively now. I've been to every defense expo there is for the last few years, and I've seen absolutely nothing that even comes close to it. So, you know, I, I believe that it just starts to open the box of what you could do. So what you're saying is I can't send you my invoice for my consultancy there. Fine. All right. <laughs> the goal I'm saying is you're really smart, mate, for, 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 for identifying that. Good ideas are cheap. It's it's the people that make it happen that matter, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that sounds like hard work. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is a good time for you to talk a bit about how you see robotics actually deployed in warfare. How how do you, Steve? How do you see that changing how we train? I guess is really the real question. You know, how, what's the impact, and how do you see that shaping what we actually do when we 
we're developing our forces. Yeah, so robotics in warfare is, I think, something that everyone is starting to identify as the next thing that we will see. The lessons I have from it, there's a couple layers to this. This is very interesting, I think. Guard Tech is working extensively now on our Jaeger program with our Jaeger combat robot. Because we've built our robotic enemy vehicles, we are able to create enemy formations, which is what we are using to train our machine learning systems and object detection systems and audible detection systems to then provide stimulus for robots to complete combat actions. Now that, from what we've done, what we've been able to do in the last two years to having fully manual deployable combat robots, which are in wartime application now, and having a very high TRL, fully autonomous system, human in the loop, and then human out of the loop, we refer to it as weapons free. The system will execute something when it gets above a certain threshold. I think it's coming extremely fast. My forecast is that the robotic fighting echelon, as we like to call it. Uh, you know, you have the supply echelon, you have the fighting echelon, which is primarily people and assets. I believe that there's going to be a robotic fighting echelon, air, land, and sea, and that will become the mechanism in which we will wage war. And it's going to be at a scale which we haven't seen yet because you can mass produce these systems and the technologies to do it have never, ever been more readily available. And the consequence of these systems, because... You can fight like the Taliban where you're planting IEDs, but instead of an IED, you're planting an extremely clever system that has many, many actions on, and it has many, many sensor systems to make to choose the right action on, and it has a huge payload. The Jaeger can carry about 45 kilograms of explosives. So a 45-kilogram charge is a catastrophic amount of explosives that would be placed into an enemy position. A 155 round, for example, has about seven, maybe eight. Mm. So you can think about the consequence is huge and the fact that uh, all robotic systems will be treated as sacrificial systems. You can build them at a cost point where they will be the 10th of a price of a javelin and yet it'll be able to sit there on the road for months, just recharge itself off the sun or the wind, mm -hmm. and it will provide you with a data stream of exactly what's in front of it 24 hours a day. So I think it's coming really, really fast. And I think it causes a lot of problems for how do we raise, train and sustain our forces? And what, the question of where do people invest in the human machine teaming piece? I think every MOD in the world is looking at human machine teaming. A lot of primes are, are also doing it. I think a lot of them are just creating smaller horses. So what Henry Ford said was, if we ask the customer what they want, they want a faster horse. And I think what the primes are very good at doing is creating a different shaped horse. And what we're yep. seeing in the robotic space is they are building, I will say, smaller tanks that don't have people in them that are yep. robotic, but they still have the price tag that's associated with a long life system. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's the consumable aspect of systems, I think, that is going to be truly terrifying. This is the bit when I referred to it at the top of the podcast was, or the interview was the terrifying bit. You know, I That is petrifying to me, thinking about infanteers on the ground. And you know, I'm hoping and, and I truly hope that, you know, Allied armies are starting to think, think about how we counter these types of unmanned vehicles and how we protect our troops on the ground. Because like you say, the idea that there's a dormant, completely controllable, seven kilometers out, low profile, up-armored, 45 kilogram, 50 kilometers an hour vehicle that can just drive into you as soon as they see, see movement is petrifying for everybody. It's movable IEDs and that's that's not good. And then, you know, the psychological effect of IDs in Afghanistan was huge. And I can only, I can only assume that the next you know, elevation of that is, is going to have the same effect, if not more. There's a virtuous circle here. We know this is a threat today. We're seeing it 
actually on our uh, the videos that come through. So uh, how do we train for this? Yeah. How do we train for the Good threat? Question. How do we train yep. to deploy? You know. One is we need to get the systems that are available and start throwing them against our own forces as part of the red team, blue team activities and be extremely honest with the consequences that we are finding. If a Jaeger is able to close the distance and find forces and detonates and it causes damage, then it is a massive threat. We are working with a number of Ministry of Defence and Departments of Defence where we are saying, go and get your best tank and bring it to the range. We will bring some Jaegers. You go live fire. We will just try and close the gap. We'll just try and get our Jaegers from where they are to you. We'll stay within arc. We'll tell you roughly where we're going to be coming from. You just need to drive down the stab track. If we can get to you, whoa, right? Like, you know, mm. your crown jewel, the knight in shining armor has a problem. Yeah. And I think robotics, you know, throughout history, there's been new advancements in weaponry, but weaponry is at its core the exact same thing. It is delivering kinetic energy against something from something else. And ideally, you want to do it from a position of safety. And if we think about weaponry as it's at the simplest, I'm a simple guy. I don't think I'm extremely clever. I just like to break things down and try and you know, understand it. And a tank just you know delivers kinetic energy, delivers an effect against something at a chosen moment in time. What I saw from the Taliban was they were very, very good at providing the kinetic energy through a crude means, often, sometimes not so crude, at at, a, at the perfect moment in time, which would cause chaos. And that is what war is. So how do we prepare against it? Well, we must get these systems and we must be honest and test them. There's a number of projects around the world that are doing it. I'd like to see more. And we test it against the massive acquisitions that we're buying. If a country happened to be buying an armoured fleet of vehicles that's going to, it's meant to be lasting at the next 10, 20 years, 30 years possibly. I know two countries, Australia and the UK. Well, they have to be testing these things against the emerging threats, either to build countermeasures into it or to go, wait a minute, maybe we're wrong. I've been to a number <laughs> of conferences where I've been to a number of conferences where I've had a speaking position and I've asked the audience, I've noticed that everyone thinks that tanks and armored fighting vehicles are going to be around for the next 30 years. Do you think you're wrong? And everyone is adamant that they're accurately, that they're correct. And I think we're probably getting close to a moment where people are going to go, oh, shit, it's just too hard to beat it through cost, speed of fabrication, consequence. And if it's unmanned and there's no people, just send it. Just make as many as you can and send them. Right. I think I need to stop you there. We have been talking for a good long period of time now. I think it's all fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for coming on, Steen. Contact details for yourself and the company will be in the show notes. Is there anything else just before we finish that you'd like to add? No, gentlemen, thank you so much for inviting me on and letting me let me ramble on about the sort of things that we're passionate about. We like to be a little bit disruptive. We like to question things. And I think the thing that everyone just needs to keep in the forefront of their mind is maybe it's not ready now or maybe it won't be perfect tomorrow, but there's a lot of people that are working on these kind of things that will be ready very soon in the future. And it's going to be extremely hard to get back. So I think that's yeah. the main thing that we like to sort of leave people with is really watch this space and don't be complacent with it because you know, we make major acquisition decisions and everyone supports it, but there always needs to be someone questioning it. And you know, that's what we like to do. Yeah, really, really fascinating. Thank you, Steen. 
Well, I did promise that it would be slightly terrifying and it still is. I'm pretty sure I'm going to lose a little bit of sleep <laughs> thinking about the future of warfare and genuinely just thinking about what it's going to be like to be a soldier on the front line in modern warfare. Well, what I mean, what's clear is things are changing rapidly and we're having to think differently, not only about deployment, but also training. That's a really interesting thing. I think we're going to keep coming back to when this is how does training and, and even indeed simulation change as the face of warfare changes? Yeah, exactly. So moving on to our final segment now, which is the current affairs news. So here is Andy from MS&T. Andy Fawkes, how are you? Very good, Colin. Everything's good. I've hopefully got some nice news for us uh, to talk about today. Uh, di- you know, diverse bit of news, some serious, some maybe not so serious. Good. So what do we got first? First one is a really interesting article on eVTOL training. So for those who don't know what that means, it's electric vertical takeoff and landing. And in the civil space, people are working hard on that in terms of like flying cars. You might have seen seen that. And mm-hmm. uh, also for training aircraft, as electric is moving into aviation more. But the military particularly the US military, maybe that's other nations, and maybe that's for another conversation, but they're investing quite heavily in terms of R&D, looking at the military potential of these quite small aircraft. So just to give you an idea, you know, one might be about 15 meter wingspan, typically rotary, of course, might be able to fly 250 miles. And the sort of use cases they're looking at are like medical, you know, you could send some medical personnel very swiftly and key passengers transporting people or resupply maybe of a, and of, you know, there are advantages in terms of, well, the most obvious one to me, they're quiet, tending to be small, they'll be quite sort of agile and presumably land pretty well anywhere. And I guess they're thinking about training because that's part of the certification. Yeah, so I, I was just giving you uh, the reason for having these vehicles or aircraft and why they're being looked at. So I know the US Marines are looking, but the article in MS&T is specifically about what the US Air Force is doing through their AFWERX. And AFWERX is a kind of catalyst for innovation the US have, or the US Air Force have, sorry, which brings together military and industry, which sounds very good in itself, doesn't it? And then there's a, the AFWERX Agility Prime is specifically looking at these evil VTOLs. And as part of that, they're looking at the uh, the training associated with that. So I thought that was a really good story mm-hmm. that they're recognising training start off because these aircraft will undoubtedly fly in a different way than typical fossil fuel driven aircraft. And indeed, they can be designed in completely different ways. So that's interesting for the for the pilots. People want to read this, the article, but it, it points out there's a company called Aptima and they started a sort of data analysis process. They're capturing information from the, you know, the pilots who are testing these new aircraft. And there's a whole variety of them, which in a way is a bit of a challenge in, it, in itself. They found that experienced pilots, both fixed and rotary wing, are showing pretty rapid learning trajectories and that training times will probably be much shorter than would be necessary with conventional aircraft. Anecdotally, helicopter pilots pick up, picked up the hovering tasks a little more easily, which doesn't seem very surprising. Yeah, shocking. <laughs> and <horror. laughs> learn how to transition between modes of flight, so like from on the wing to hovering, more quickly than fixed-wing pilots. Again, not altogether surprising. But they say they will have to wait for more data to come in. I think for our listeners, I think it's interesting this uh, could be a whole new element to warfare, but also thinking about how you can innovate, how you can start thinking about humans or the, the personnel very early on. So I thought that was that was a really positive story there coming out of the US. So 
I'm sure our listeners will be aware there's lots of news coming out of the USA right now. I think uh, one story that we've reported on, which may not be everyone will be aware, is that the uh, November 2022 has been designated National XR Month. Now, XR, uh, right. this is a really interesting story. And I'll come to, I think we've all got views on having these sorts of days or months. Surely every day should be uh, XR day. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I... I'm just, waiting, I'm just waiting for, you know, Warfighter Day to come around and then Colin Hillier Day. But Eric, anyway, I digress and please continue. Moving on from how you feel about these days, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this uh, is who's designating it is mm-hmm. National XR Month. There's an XR caucus. You know, I'm not an expert on US Constitution, but it, they sound important to me. So they're, they're, they're part of the House of Representatives and as well as supporting the month of November as this National XR Month. As I say, it's like a manifesto, and I think we'll put links on the site so everyone can read this. So it, it's on the congress.gov website. The House of Representatives resolved that they recognise the positive economic and cultural impact of XR in the United States and supports the designation uh, of November, as I've said. And they see XR as an umbrella term used to describe immersive technologies, and I think that's the key point. So that includes you know, your typical VR, AR uh, headsets, etc. But other technologies not yet invented, interestingly, that will enable the integration of digital content and the physical environment in a manner that supports user engagement. They claim in this that the market for these technologies, immersive technologies, is projected to reach $450 billion by 2030. So it's the business to get into, isn't it? And as I say, they give a whole list of reasons ranging from healthcare, public safety. They obviously do include military uses, but it isn't just that. It's across the piece into manufacturing, construction, and basically impacting on the future of work as well. And we will see lots of really interesting applications with this and plenty of opportunities to get involved in this. But I do wonder if some of this is not like 3D TV. You know, I mean, <laughs> you can't buy a 3D TV anymore, but you could five years ago. I mean, I hope it's not, you know, a fad, but I guess we're waiting for the XR experience that you just pop on at home. You know, because I don't know if, Tom, if you've got an XR headset that you just pop on of an evening. I, before my life ended and had, I had children. Yeah, I did. I, I <laughs> yeah. The, the... <laughs> yeah, children. It would be quite dangerous. So health and safety issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty unfortunate, you know, this being XR month. And then, unfortunately, Meta laying off, was it 11,000? <laughs> so their bet into the XR sphere is looking rocky at best at the moment now I, it sounds like i'm being down on xr i'm really not as everyone knows i absolutely love it and i think there's a huge application for it across defense that goes without saying from my perspective and my opinion but yes so andy what what did you feel that the what's the main effort for this month what are they is it just trying to focus what the are they actually doing yeah yeah what are they <laughs> Well, I, I mean, the fact that we're talking about it, I think it's, <laughs> as I've said, it's to raise awareness of XR and its importance to the US as a country. That's what it's designed to do. I think also it is, they recognise it isn't just about putting headsets on. I think that's the key point. It is about, it's immersive technologies. And I, I think it doesn't have to be something you strap on your head. It can just be your, you know, wearables. The military, I think, is going to embrace these technologies I mean, even the latest Apple Watch, you can train your Apple Watch to recognize if you move your fingers in certain ways or you click your fingers, which just seems extraordinary to me. So there is a danger in this and people do have strong view, polarized views about sticking headsets on. The XR covers all wearables, is that correct? Or Yeah, so their definition, they say it's an umbrella term used to describe 
immersive technologies, including augmented reality, etc., that enable the integration of digital content and then physical environment in a manner that supports user engagement. It's a bit metaversy, isn't it? <laughs> I didn't want to say it. I didn't want to say it. <laughs> yeah. And they say it's a critical part of the emerging technology ecosystem that includes artificial intelligence, machine learning, robotics, quantum computing, and advanced communications. And I think, you know, so they see it as part of the wider technology trends. So if you throw all the phrases in there, then you can't be wrong, which is, you know, <laughs> which is good. Well, they've not said it's November is Artificial Intelligence Month, have they? <laughs> so. No, that, that's obviously in January. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah that's old news. Everyone knows what AI is now. <laughs> AI month. Yeah. Please, uh, everyone, have a look at that. If you're interested in XR, there's some great facts and figures and descriptions and uh, why XR. I do jest, but actually, I'm going to go away and read that now because it is important for me to know that. So I'll go away and have a look. <laughs> yeah. I've made one person aware of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. You're welcome. Yeah. Okay. So turning to a more serious news, and I think it's partly because I wasn't fully aware of this either myself. So there's a war going on in Ukraine, and a number of nations are helping to train Ukrainians part of the multinational effort. And in the UK, it's called Operation Interflex, which was launched on 9th of July 2022 this year by a former prime minister. And it's really essentially a British-led multinational operation. And the reason bringing this up is because Australia just very recently sending 70 military personnel over to the UK to help train Ukrainians. The aim of Operation Interflex is to train 10,000 Ukrainians every 120 days, my researchers inform me. And apparently by the 14th of September this year, they've trained 5,000 Ukrainians, which seems impressive. And they've over various UK sites, there's... Other nations have sent military personnel to join this. So obviously across Europe and as said, Australia, New, New Zealand. So they- that, that's quite, quite impressive because if you think about the current infantry training pipeline, I don't know what the number is of infantry training is every 14 weeks, but the numbers aren't, it's not 10,000, is it? No, we don't. Every third of a year. It is massively impressive and something that I'm actually really proud of. You know, I've got friends, colleagues, people I've worked with in the past who are involved in the process. The whole pipeline, not logistics and training pipeline that's been put together to facilitate Ukraine. And it's about, and this is the difference, this is why Ukraine is having the successes. It's, it's, it's doing it properly. It's training their troops. It's looking after them. It's ensuring they... They have the kit and equipment they require, but most importantly, it's giving the troops confidence that they are prepared to go into a war zone. Now, you know, as much as they can be, and of course, there are time constraints that when that they need to, they're needed where they're needed as soon as possible. But that's what hopefully is turning the tide. And as we get into winter, I think that's going to tell even more when we've got the Ukrainian troops have got all the right winter gear and they're set up ready for you know, either well, I, and I, I think I think you see already, I was looking at some of the stats that are published and some of the stories on the Telegram channels and things like that. And it couldn't be more of a contrast compare Russians picking people off the street, rolling out of a bar one night, they're off two days later, they're at the front line. Mm-hmm. without equipment, without sleeping bags, a rusty weapon, and just told to sort of guard that ditch versus what, when you look at the videos of the Ukrainians, they look the part. You know that thing like you you look the part, they look like they know what they're doing. They've got the intent, they've got the training, they've got the equipment. Yep. You know, it couldn't be broader. And that's why I actually see some of the sort of shocking figures about the sort of casualty rates on, obviously take them all with a pinch of salt, but 
and, and the recent news about Kherson, that just yeah. shows that, I mean, nothing's easily won, but without that training and support, it just wouldn't be happening like it is. It's an age-old British military adage. It says, uh, Aliness saves lives. Or the seven Ps. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that as well. But yeah, I, I think the story is also about the, the multinational effort, although it's, it's British-led. It, it is definitely a... And that must also give a feeling of perhaps a little bit more confidence as well that there's a whole range of countries behind their training. Definitely. Although, again, I'm, I'm not privy to any information. I can imagine it must be very hard to keep the training pipeline consistent if you've got so many na- nations training. The Australians will teach whatever it might be fighting built-up areas the british will teach close quarter battles whoever it might be and imagine everyone will have their own ttps and sops so the yeah the leading structures for those courses have got their work cut out for them keep it consistent as well yeah and i also think nations are providing various equipments and you know weapon systems and platforms so mm-hmm. there's that to deal with as well so giving the training specific to those variety of weapons etc well, I'd love to speak to anyone involved in that training. So if anyone yeah. is listening, uh, then feel yeah. free to recommend anyone Send we could email. get them on. Uh, so that's contact at warfighterpodcast.com. Well, thanks again, Andy. Great to have these updates and we'll look forward to the next set. Yeah, absolutely. For our listeners, do go to our website, um, Military Simulation Training, which is halldale.com, and can subscribe to the newsletters. So if you don't want to hear my voice, you can just read, <laughs> read them. But uh, I can read them for you, but also provides a bit more context. So, uh, yeah, thank you for listening. And thank you, Tom and Colin, as ever. Thanks so much. So thank you again, Andy. We should really call him postman, as he always delivers. No, no, Colin. I'm going to leave that in just because I need, it's important so for people to understand you. what I have to work with. So I'm going to leave that in because that, that is your personality and it's important that, that we get, you, you get to, you get to do the dad jokes. Yeah. Um, so great. Let's, let's carry on. So one of the things I find really encouraging with where we're going so far with this podcast is the number of people have reached out to myself and Tom, either suggesting new areas to cover in the podcast or topics or suggestions. And I'd just like to say, keep those coming. Really interested to hear what you guys think, good or bad, not afraid of any constructive criticism and any thoughts and ideas. You can either share that through our LinkedIn page and messages. Uh, we do respond to those. Or Tom, how do they get in touch otherwise through email? All the information is in the show notes, but the email is contact at warfighterpodcast.com. Looking forward to your messages. So that wraps up episode two of the podcast. As ever, I think if we're enjoying recording it, I'm, I'm hoping that people listening will actually enjoy it as well. So I hope that comes across. And that's it from me. Anything from you, Colin? No, we'll see you in two weeks' time. Bye.